So here we are. You've now done 48 hours. Congratulations. Not so easy to do. I remember my first time at being here at IMS, and I had uh, I was uh, editor in chief of Esquire magazine and living in New York City, and. I had just vaguely heard about IMS, and I had been a very strong Raja Yogi, very dedicated practitioner. And I would for various reasons, gotten dissatisfied with its ability to help me in my daily life. And so a good friend of mine said, oh, well, let's go up to this place I've heard about. And so I arrived here about this time of year, and that was in 1983, so 25 years ago. and. I got here late because, of course, I worked to the very last minute at the office, as my workaholic nature would have it. And um, there was just, uh, and I'd missed the opening evening that you all had. And there was a little notice on the board that was a little stern, it seemed to me, saying, well, you're late and we've already started. Your room is downstairs in the, in the gym. There's now a series of individual rooms down there. I think three or four of you are living down there. But in those days, it was just a big open gym. And it said, oh, by the way, we've had a pipe burst, so you have to wear your shoes down there because there's water on the floor. <laughs> in the middle of winter, uh, the roads were icier than this. And, uh, and, they, and we're in silence, so please observe the silence. So being a very dutiful yogi, well-trained by that point from my uh, other practice. I went down there, in fact, to, I would have to put my shoes on the windowsill, reach up and get them and put them on in the bed before I could get onto the floor. It was really kind of outrageous. Fortunately, it was only a weekend. I, I later found out that one person had not come and had I complained, they would have probably have found me this empty bed. But I made it through the weekend doing this. And the other thing that was so uh, noticeable about the practice is that I had spent many years learning to control my breath. So I had become quite skilled at achieving these uh, bliss states around controlling my breath. And the very first instruction was, follow your breath, but whatever you do, don't control it. And I thought, what? Are these people crazy? And the whole weekend went that way. It was a very uh, challenging weekend uh, for many, many reasons. And um, uh, I kept going, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And yet there was something. There was something to this practice. I did not have one concentrated state the whole time, no bliss feelings whatsoever. The mind was just yak yak the entire uh, weekend. It was a three-day, I think, or three-and-a-half days, something like that. And then when I got back to Manhattan, I uh, was dumping all my bags, and I just sat down on the floor of my apartment, went straight into such a peaceful sit. And I said, hmm, there's something here. And that began this long exploration uh, of, of how I was to establish my relationship with Vipassana. And I tell you that story because this is the part of the retreat where for many people it's the roughest. You're sleepy, you're irritated, it's not going the way you had hoped, so on and so forth. But just notice, is there something there for you? Is there something that seems, yes, yes. Be patient with yourself in that way. And in that regard, tonight we're going to be looking at the second noble truth, and we will be referencing the hindrances of mind, which you've all been practicing with these last two days, as part of that examination of the three insights of the second noble truth. We all, in some way, know the second noble truth, even if we had never been exposed to Buddhism in any way. What is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? We usually say the cause of suffering. What is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? It is craving, accompanied by relish and lust, relishing this and that, 
relishing, craving for sensual desires, craving for being, craving for non-being. So that's the fourth insight. The fifth insight. This noble truth must be penetrated by abandoning the origin of suffering. So hear that. With the first noble truth, what we were supposed to do was understand dukkha. It did, the Buddha did not say abandon dukkha. He just said understand dukkha. Know it for yourself. Knowing the experience within the experience. But here he's up the ante considerably. You can feel the progressiveness of the Four Noble Truths as a practice. This noble truth must be penetrated by abandoning the origin of suffering. So you abandon the cause of suffering. We'll be coming back to that. The sixth insight, this noble truth has been penetrated by abandoning the origin of suffering. So yet you realize that you have had this, uh, this insight, this realization that you've been able to abandon the cause of suffering. So as, although we all know how we get caught in things, right? We all know this. How many times have you said, you know, I just can't let go of this, or this has really got me, or, you know, I'm just consumed by this. So it's in our everyday language. And yet, we hold it at a distance. Like this cartoon uh, of a, in a therapist office. I love cartoons of therapists. And this particular... Uh, cartoon, the therapist is sitting there and this huge elephant is, is there on his couch. And the elephant's got this very forlorn look on his face and he says, I'm right there in the room and no one even acknowledges me. <laughs> it's really that way in regards to our craving, to our clinging, to our getting caught. We are so reluctant to just face up to it, to go, oh yes, I am caught, and I can make that my practice. I have some choice in how I relate to the fact that I'm caught. It's very hard for us to do, because we either want to take care of it, you know, get what we're craving, what we're clinging to, or else we want to distract ourselves from the discomfort of it, rather than make it a practice. And the many, many ways that the Buddha was radical for his time and radical for our time is among those that he said, make it a practice. Create a new relationship to it. You don't have to get rid of it or uh, avoid it, distract yourself from it, or try to get it, you can change your relationship to it. And in changing your relationship to it, it will self-liberate. That the clinging, when seen with insight, will self-liberate in time. Very radical. So let's first make the distinction between craving, tanha in Pali, tanha, and desire. Desire, uh, Ajahn Sumedho describes as a natural energy of this realm. That it is natural that we're going to experience desire. I certainly find that true within my experience. How about you? So desire is a natural energy of this realm. But when desire gets idealized, idealized, what it is that's desired, gets idealized and then identified with, you then collapse into craving, you contract into craving, you're swept away into craving, whatever your inner image and inner experience is of how you're suddenly caught. But you do know you're caught. This is not something that uh, people really have that hard a time uh, noticing. Two things have happened when desire is uh, uh, contracted into craving. One is that there is some object or some experience or some person or some accomplishment that has come to be idealized as happiness. Oh, that represents happiness. 
if I just had that person in my life, if I was with that man or that woman, or if I had that job, or if I had that title, or had that salary, or had that child, or uh, whatever it is, then that's happiness. That's happiness. It's idealized, and we become identified with it. The second thing that happens is that uh, idealization and identification creates a delusion in our mind which we don't notice so well, which is this idea that there's this permanent fixture to the self that's idealizing that, that there's this person who's always going to want this, and just having this will make us absolutely happy from now on. And it's the combination of those two that leads to the suffering. Now, you can think about the things that you've idealized. Oh, if I can just get to the meeting on time. Oh, I'm running late. If I can just get there on time, I've got to get there on time. And in that moment, it seems like that's the whole world. You get to the meeting, it hasn't started. You get to the meeting, and it's a horrible meeting, and you, you weren't there. <laughs> or this, do you remember that person that you were so uh, fixated on in high school, and how if you had just had that person, you would have been happy for the rest of your life? And you look back and you go, what? <laughs> but at that time, it seemed that real to you. The idea of a you seemed that permanent, that unmoving, that unchanging. All of which life has shown you is not true. You're always moving. Everything's always changing. What you want changes. And then there's, it's not just wanting one thing, but there's another and another and another. Wanting is endless. There's no satisfaction that ever cuts off wanting from achieving a desire. We, we vaguely know this, but we don't own up to it. We don't line up to it because we've not made understanding, craving our practice. And in the second noble truth, that is the instruction, to understand it to the point that we can abandon it. Not once, but over and over and over and over, and then over many more times after that. So when this craving starts, there's fixation, there's urgency, there's this, uh, uh, this impulsiveness, there's something, um, in, in, there's an imperativeness to it. It can be over the smallest thing or the largest thing. So it can be over something like just finding a parking place, you know, and we're desperate to find a parking place. And we get, we get furious if we think someone's taken our parking place. It can ruin our entire day because someone took our parking place. And in what way is that serving us, that it ruined our entire day? And yet we can, because that's the fixation, you see. Once you've contracted into it, it is inevitable, as the Buddha says, that suffering will come. Once craving has arisen, suffering is inevitable at that point. Uh, of, of amusing poem. The other night I read you a, a poem by, uh, the, by Mira, the, uh, which was about stillness. And tonight, just for fun around desire and this craving. Three years went by and I had not slept with a man. I consulted the moon about this and she said it had been even longer for her but she didn't think she was missing much. <laughs> every desire is like that, you know, every desire. So the, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz is a compulsion that leads to suffering, whether or not you get the Mercedes Benz. <laughs> Ajahn Sumedho, when talking about suffering, says, usually we equate suffering with feeling, but feeling is not suffering. So hear that. Usually we equate suffering with feeling, but feeling is not suffering. It is the grasping of desire that is suffering. The grasping of desire that is suffering. So you can have desire and not grasp it. You have that choice. You may not have that choice at every moment yet, but as we practice, we have more and more and more moments when we have that choice. 
That's why this is so radical, because we start to move into this new relationship with desire. We learn to have a, a relationship with desire where it may characterize the moment, but we are not defined by it. So you can be uh, going into the lunch line in the morning and having a desire for a banana. You'd like to have banana with your, your granola. That's a desire. It's, it's just rose for whatever reason, you know, when you were sitting in the early morning sit. And you go into the lunchroom and, and, and the dining hall, and uh, there's bananas. And then you watch and you're from your place in line as they get cut in half, and it looks like, is there going to be one for me? Is there not going to be one for me? That experience of watching that can be play. It can be a form of amusement while you still have the desire. Or you can be going, well, you know, they could cut it in thirds. <laughs> they should put out more bananas. I'm going to make a Donna offering, a meal Donna offering, I'm going to say for bananas only. <laughs> we actually had this happen at a retreat recently. The person said, you don't put out enough bananas. I want to give you the money to get more bananas. <laughs> and you don't get that banana, and then, you, you know, you're miserable for 20 minutes or something, or you, you, you complain about it all day, or you come back to it all day. That is being defined by the desire. Can you feel that difference? I mean, it's, it's important. This doesn't all unfold if, if you don't have some feeling for that. So really checking in with yourself for a moment. Like, yeah, I see what he means. I can remember times when I've done it one way or the other. And when you think about the number of times that you have desires each day, how many times? And so each time you grasp at a desire, there's a little bit of violence. There's a little bit of violence in that contraction, in that being swept away, in, in that reaching towards, being pulled towards. There's a little bit of violence to, to your, your own well-being. And it happens over and over again. There's a, there's a, a feeling of, uh, of this wanting being so strong that, our, that we're putting on these lenses or these glasses where we're seeing the world from the eyes of desire. We, it's the kind of blinders, and that's all we see. That isn't your world. It's not your world. Each of you already know this. You may not have made a practice out of reminding yourself, out of using mindfulness to interrupt that constancy of that grabbing that desire happens. So you learn in time to let loose of it when, it's, when, uh, when you start to feel the contracting, go, oh, I don't want that. Or you learn to recognize the sign and you don't even go there. Or if you've already taken birth in it, you learn to be gentle with yourself as you go through this process of letting go of it, because you will let go of it through being with the suffering. And we'll talk more about how to do that with a gentleness. And so uh, once you've fallen into this grasping of desire, there's dissatisfaction, there's unease, there's tension, there's uh, 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 this kind of uh, what, what I want and what I don't want, all this huge duality. and that becomes your world. It's this tumultuous world. Again, it's a world of violence, violence to your own sense of well-being. There are uh, three kinds of desire that the Buddha described, and I, I read them to you, actually, when I was reading uh, the sutta. The kamatanha, which is the desire for sense pleasures. So any kind of sense desire is this kamatanha. And then there's bhavana tanha, this desiring to become or desiring for being. So you may have a desire to be a great uh, 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 yogi. You want to be, you desire to be uh, able to concentrate in great deep states and have all these altered consciousness experiences. Run into a lot of that on retreat. Or you, you may want to be a, a great mother or a, a CEO or a, a, a get a Nobel Prize and 
whatever it can be. It can be quite small or quite large, but it's something you're not that you're wanting to become. And you're, you, it's not just a desire, but you're possessed by that desire. You're craving that. Very painful, very painful, that craving. The desire itself, costly, but not so painful. But boy, once it's craving. And one of the things that is so hard for uh, many people, particularly uh, you know, A-type personalities, to ever believe when I say this, but that being possessed by the desire does not actually help you in the long term achieve your end. Not in the long term. In a given moment, we can argue that. But any kind of sustained effort, when you're caught in craving, you're burning through your system so much faster. The desire does not need the craving to uh, be uh, found towards its end if it's a wholesome desire. It does not need to go into craving. Some of you may well have a belief system that says, if I really want to accomplish something, I have to crave it. Some of you may well believe that if I, if even in something like uh, food, or sexuality, if I'm not caught in craving, then I, I won't, I can't, it's not real desire because you've gotten those confused. It's very common, it's very easy to do. No reason to judge ourselves, but rather to learn, to inform ourselves. One of the kinds of craving for becoming that uh, I run into a lot on retreat, and it's a sad thing, is people craving that their past be other than it was. There is this demand that the past be other than it was. And sometimes it's very obvious, that kind of craving, and, and you kind of know it and you, you could recognize it right away, but sometimes it's pretty darn subtle, exactly how you're holding on to your story in some way. You know, and, uh, you know, Demanding that the past be other than it was? Good luck. Good luck. So painful to see that. Interestingly enough, as we really truly come into the present with mindfulness and loving kindness, and we meet a thought from the past, or we see the karmic connection to this moment to the past, when we're present, with mindfulness and loving kindness, there is a kind of uh, alteration of the past because the past is reconciled in this moment. So that, uh, that terrible childhood, is, uh, which was, seemed like meaningless suffering, is made meaningful in that moment of kindness that you give to another person or that you're now able to receive from another person where for years you couldn't really receive kindness. You couldn't open to be even seen or taken care of. There's many levels to this practice that we're undertaking here. Many, many benefits at these various levels. The third kind of craving of tanha is uh, the craving to not be, to not exist, vibhavana, uh, tanha. And this is the kind of craving where you just don't want to be here. So maybe some of you today when the bell wouldn't ring and your legs were killing you or that knife feeling was stabbing you right at the shoulder blades, you're going, I can't stand this another moment. That was a moment that you didn't want to be here. And in our lives we have many moments. We're uncomfortable in a meeting at work or we have a difficult co-worker or we have this uh, uh, this difficulty in our relationship or we're torn between two people in relationship and we can't stand the tension of all of this and we just don't want to exist. We want to be obliterated. And in fact, we oftentimes take little uh, steps of obliteration through alcohol or television or food or drugs or picking a fight with someone that we do kind of obliterate that that person that's really the, having the primary experience so that we can have some, uh, we can be avoiding the primary experience that's going on in our lives. Adrian was talking last night that the, that the cause of death 
the first cause of death, the primal cause of death, is being born. That's really a major statement. It's, I don't know anywhere other than in Buddhism that you hear that. And it's so obviously true. And it suggests that we need a new relationship with craving, given that this is true, given that we have agreed to those terms in order to exist. By simply existing, we have agreed. So sometimes uh, we uh, want uh, something uh, so badly that we fall into craving that we don't have. But sometimes we have this kind of desire that can't even be temporarily satiated. So uh, uh, in the, the Basho poem that has uh, uh, always been so poignant for me, even in Kyoto, Hearing the cuckoo's cry, I long for Kyoto. You know that feeling. You're there with someone, and yet you're longing for someone. You're eating food, and yet you're hungry for food. You're, you're in nature, but you're hungry for nature. What is that? What is that? There's something that's un- uh, uh, reveal there's something to be worked out to drop us below that level. We are caught in a cycle of, of desire that's, that's, uh, that's unrecognized, that uh, we have not been mindful with, we've not had a sustained relationship with in a way that we have found some freedom. So this is the, the first insight, this, uh, the cause of suffering is this craving this clinging, this grasping. The second insight of the second noble truth is that we let go of the cause. We let go of the origin of suffering. Now, why would the Buddha have changed the instructions here? So with the first noble truth, it was to understand dukkha. Here he doesn't say, let go of craving he doesn't say understand craving, he says let go of craving. So those of you who've not been in a retreat with me before around this when I've asked this question in the room, what would you, what would come to mind? We're gonna do this together for a moment. There must be no value. There must be no value in just understanding craving, or at least not enough value maybe. Okay, thank you for that. You can't let go of it unless you understand it. What else? I don't understand the question. So why did the Buddha say to abandon the cause of suffering rather than simply to understand it? Why is the instruction to abandon it? What is it he's wanting us to learn? So it's based on an assumption that we exist more than we really do. Someone else? So we cut the link by abandoning the craving. So abandon you have to do over and over again, whereas understanding could be one time, one last one. You have to take an action. It's something that's real and concrete. So imagine that you're in this room and you've been in this room your whole life. And I come in or Adrian comes in or Leela or Hugh come in and they say, oh, you know, there's a whole uh, forest out back and there's a forest here and this, this, we're on this globe and, 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 uh, and we show you slideshows of it, you know, and you believe it. You go, you know, that's my belief now. I believe that this is just a room. I thought this was the whole world. But it's, it's not the whole world. That's what I believe. So you understand that you're living in a room. But do you know? 
do you directly know? You have an intellectual understanding, but it's so different once you've stepped outside. Now you know what a room is because you know something other than a room, so you can know, you can know the limitation of the room. You can know the characteristics of the room. By being outside, by abandoning craving, you can know craving in a way that your intellectual understanding of it would never provide. A, 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 a fish being out of water would know water because water had been there the fish's whole existence. But once out of water and back in water, it now knows water in a way it never knew water before. If you were out of this room and you came back in this room, you would know the room for what it was in a very different way within your direct experience. Does this make sense to you? Each time you abandon craving, you are adding to this direct knowing, this intuitive knowing, the, the, uh, the Vipassana knowing, the, the kind of knowing that is referred to as insight because you know for yourself it's intuitive, it's direct. It's not a deductive, inductive kind of knowing that this practice offers. It offers direct experience. Come see for yourself, ae pasico. Come see for yourself. To do that, you have to go outside the room. You Western scholars, it would be in terms of Plato's cave. They, the, the people had to leave Plato's cave. That was his point. Otherwise, they were just seeing their shadows, but they didn't know they were shadows. They had to go out into the world to know that those were shadows that they were reacting to on the cave. In the same way, this idea of abandoning suffering. So uh, the, the, in, in the Tao, it says, free from desire, you realize the mystery. Caught in desire, now notice that word caught in desire, you, on, you see only the manifestation. This is, uh, this is the call, the practice aspect of this noble truth. You recognize you're caught because you recognize the stickiness, I call it, of clinging, of contracting, of being swept away. The mind's tight. There's, there's some sort of fixation. There's an urgency that's bouncing around in the nervous system. There's a narrowing of vision. Sometimes there's a ringing in the ears. There's a certain surrealness there, uh, to things you can have. When you're really caught in desire, it can in some ways be like you've got the flu or something, you know, because you're just so caught. You're, there's a, it's compulsive feeling. Though when you notice it, it's, it's so clear that it's suffering. The clinging mind is a mind that is reactive to the environment, to an object, to an experience, to a person, to an achievement, accomplishment. It's reactive. It's like uh, you're a puppet on these strings. And if this is one you want, oh, I want that. Or if I've got it, I want to keep it. If it's, if it's one you don't want, oh, I want to get rid of it. Or, or I've got to avoid that. So you're just this, this, this puppet reacting to these, the, this craving. You're, ju you're just a, a puppet. From my view, that's not much of a relationship to life. I mean, who wants that? Who wants that? It can, on the surface, seem more attractive because it's the soap opera-ness of being caught, swept away, craving, craving. It's got all that up and downness to it. But it's such a, an illusionary uh, state of mind. It is deluded because you've, you've created a, a, a belief system that, that experience will quickly show you isn't true. Whereas when desire arises and you don't go into craving with it, then you have choice. You are responsive. So you, if this is one you would want, this is one you don't want. But if your deeper values say, I'm just going to go ahead and, and do something that means I won't get what I want because there's something that's more important to me in my value system, then you don't, you don't become a slave to that thing you want. If it's something that you don't want but, uh, to happen, but if there's something that's more important to you, so it happens to you. 
It's not what you'd prefer, but it happens. So you're wanting to learn to uh, collect and unify your mind. You're wanting to have insight. So you sit, and the pain comes. You definitely don't want the pain to come, right? You can fall into craving an extreme and say, I'm not going to sit because I don't like the physical pain, or I don't want to have to deal with this emotional stuff that comes up. That's being reactive and being from reactivity, giving up what is your deeper values. On the other hand, here comes the pain. Oh, no, here's this pain again. And you know you're going to sit with the pain. Here's this emotional stuff. Oh, this is the price that I pay to gain this ability to uh, not be in a reactive state of mind. I know what I'm about. Going back to uh, what I mentioned the other day about wise intention, right intention, and how uh, the Eightfold Path intention to me is the axial point. Because when we're grounded in our intention, we know what we're about, and therefore we can, we can resist craving because we're about something more. Desire is just desire. It's just a natural energy. If it's wholesome, we go with it. If it's not wholesome, we don't. We don't use unskillful means to achieve even a wholesome desire because we're about something bigger than that. And we can bear, we can bear the pain of life. We can bear it. The wisdom of that, the, the Ajahn Sumedho refers to as the good of suffering. The good of suffering, that we learn that we are about something more than the fact that life is painful in various ways. That that isn't how we live our life, to just avoid pain, because it's going to be there one way or the other. But we get to choose the nature of the pain in some ways, the nature of, at least of the, of the suffering, not necessarily the, 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 the nature of the pain. But how much suffering, the nature of that suffering, all of that, we get to co-create, we get to participate in through our practice, through the mindfulness, through uh, this willingness to be present. On retreat, we can easily see how the mind clings when what are called the hindrances arise. So there are five hindrances that cloud the mind and when not noticed easily leads us into craving. One is sense desire. So we're, we're, it's just wanting, it's whatever we're wanting and if we don't notice it, we can become fixated around that wanting in great extreme. Uh, there's a cartoon I couldn't find uh, t uh, tonight that um, of where there's these, these two fish in the ocean and one is saying to the other, you know, I, I want the whole package, the little glass bowl, the sand castle, and, and those little rocks, those colored rocks. And the other fish is, well, no. Our sense desires make us like that. And our sense desires distort our perspective. An another cartoon, this is one of my favorites of all time. This is, um, there's two dolphins swimming in the ocean. And one's saying to the other one, and the other one's like, huh? If I could only, if I could do only one thing before I died, it would be to swim with a middle-aged couple from Connecticut. <laughs> Really funny, isn't it? I know so many people that crave getting to swim with the dolphins, right? And so, by extension, you see, this is the reality that that's the power of craving. It so distorts uh, our, our thoughts, our feelings, and it can be so unconscious. So sense desire is one hindrance that can come up, and you'll see this over and over again on your retreat. And then to recognize, oh, this is just a moment of sense desire. This is the hindrance of sense desire. You can even start looking for something to want, which is just unbelievable. <laughs> that you will, you look around, and you can watch yourself do this. You'll, you'll just, you're, you're a little bored. You want a little stimulation, a little entertainment, so you sort of look around for something to want. The, the 
for many of us, the most pathetic thing was to watch the number of times we'd go read the bulletin board. <laughs> you know, we're just wanting something, wanting a little stimulation. But we will also bring up old memories for that reason. We'll deliberately go into fantasies for that reason. We'll actually look for something that irritates us because we're wanting to want something. A second hindrance that comes up a lot on retreat is ill will. That there's a, that, just ignore that. <laughs> that there's, that ill will, ill will can come up in terms of a form of irritation or uh, a kind of envy on retreat, or it can be anger, or it can have a, um, a resentment. So there's many different things we can be angry about or resent or uh, just get envious. We can be envious of how still someone else is. We can be resentful of the teachers. We can have this kind of anger over what we perceive was deliberately done to us. And it's not true. It didn't happen. But we, we, we can believe that, or it might have happened, but it didn't have anything to do with us. This is called yogi mind. And many times, but there's some combination of, of the ill will, some, one of those forms, or some sort of wanting. One form of the, the sense desire is the, the Vipassana romance, where we see someone on retreat, and we go, oh, this is the person of my dream. And we, we create this whole relationship out at the end of the retreat. We're going to, we're going to meet the person. We're gonna, we've already recognized each other, and she or he has recognized us. And we imagine that, and in the course of the days of the retreat, we can go through the whole relationship ending into a kind of marriage sort of thing, and then there's children, and then there's a divorce. <laughs> we can create the whole thing in our head, and it's, it's this wanting mind, or it can actually be coming out of this kind of irritation about something else. So just to be aware of this sense desire of ill will, of sloth and torpor, this kind of sloth is this kind of uh, laziness of mind or haziness of mind, or this uh, apathy, or this, this, the mind is inactive. You just can't get to practice. You just sit there and you're in this kind of uh, state of, of sloth. You just, there's no energy for practice. It's just a hindrance of mind. It's impersonal. It arises because of cause and, and conditions. Or torpor can arise. You're sleepy, and you, you were sleepy the first day and you got over it and you thought, well, boy, I'm glad that's over. Now you're in the fourth day and you can't keep your eyes, uh, uh, you know, from being heavy. Every meditation, you just clunk. And it's easy then to fall into irritation over that, when it's in fact, it's just torpor. Hindrances happen on retreat. Hindrances happen in daily life. If we don't notice them as hindrances, they can lead to craving and lead to a lot of suffering. So a kindness towards ourselves around this. A fourth hindrance is restlessness and worry. So you're sitting there and the last sit was great and now you can't sit still, you're jumpy or your mind's jumpy. You can't stay with the breath, you can't follow the instructions. You just keep going to fantasy, to fantasy or planning. Many of you I suspect are big planners already. Planning, planning, rehearsing. How many times have you already rehearsed that conversation? 40, 60 and you're rehearsing it again? And you go along with it. Why are you going along with rehearsing it again? You know, is it going to get any better, that rehearsal? It's ready for Broadway now. So we learn to stop it. But if we don't, oh, this was just the hindrance of restless and worry. It is impersonal. It happens to all people. The causes and conditions were right, and this was restlessness and worry. And then the fifth of the hindrances is skeptical doubt which I call the mother of all hindrances. Because when doubt is really strong, you won't give yourself a chance. It is really, um, it's really a big hindrance. You, you won't even try. You, uh, you'll, you'll, you're sitting there and you get a little restless and you start moving. When in fact, you didn't have to move yet. You could have waited to see what would happen if you didn't move for another two minutes. You could say, well, do I have to move right now? Well, no, not right this moment. Giving yourself total permission to move when you need to move. But do you have to move right now? Doubt won't let you ask that question. Oh, could you sit an extra 15 minutes? Doubt won't let you. 
Doubt is so powerful, and it can uh, uh, be entwined with all the other hindrances, so it can uh, be a little disguised at times. Learning to recognize this is doubt. I'm not trusting my practice. I may trust the Dharma for others, but not for me in this moment. Oh, it's just because of causes and conditions doubt has arisen. I do not have to believe doubt, even if in this moment it is, it is uh, conditioning what I'm doing, I don't have to believe it. I don't have to take birth in it in the long term. It's just a moment of doubt, just a moment of doubt, and it will change. And again, this great uh, uh, tenderness towards yourself around it. Non-clinging, to not cling, to not go into craving, is, uh, as Ajahn Sumedho says, leaving things as they are, leaving them alone, letting them alone. So you can have a hindrance arise in the mind of wanting. It's just wanting. It's only when we grab hold of it and identify with it, when it moves from being a characteristic, a hindrance is characterizing the moment. But when we grab hold, it's now defining the moment. So just, we, we don't have to like beat something out of us. It's not that kind of a practice. It's just leaving it alone, not grabbing hold of it. It will go on its own time. We can also see the suffering in clinging. Just to ask, oh, here I'm really caught in this. Is this suffering or not suffering? Quickly you will see it's suffering. T.S. Eliot puts it so beautifully when he says, teach us to care and not to care. We can start to see the difference between caring about something and being attached to the outcome of it. So of course we want our children to be healthy. Of course we want our children to get a good education. But being attached to that outcome doesn't help the children get a good education and it creates so much suffering along the way and actually gets in the way. This is the, this is the over-controlling parent and so forth that comes out of that sometimes. We can also uh, see that uh, meeting the craving is our opportunity for practice. It's not an interruption to practice. It is an opportunity to practice. At this moment, my practice looks like this, dealing with craving. At this moment, my practice is like this. It's dealing with hindrance. Oh, so here's a hindrance. Or here's two or three hindrances at once, a hindrance attack. Oh, this is my practice right now. You're not doing a bad practice at that moment. You're not a bad yogi. That's all view and opinion. Being with what is is the practice. So now you're practicing being with the hindrance or being with some kind of a complete craving. In order to do that, it helps to uh, uh, have a strong mindfulness practice. So as you get more and more in the momentum of your mindfulness, that will help you. It also helps, as I believe it was Adrian said the first night, to take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. Many yogis don't realize how Literally, we mean that. Uh, I sat for a month just recently, and I was doing a fairly esoteric practice. And the only way I got there was taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. I couldn't do what this teacher was asking me to do through effort. I just couldn't. It, would, it wasn't happening day after day, and I was, it was a month-long practice of this one thing over and over again. But once I started taking refuge, in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, I was able to do it. So for you, that might mean, oh yes, I do believe that I have a Buddha nature, or I do appreciate these teachings. However you would phrase it to yourself, talk with yourself about it, or the Dharma, I do want to know the truth. I am capable of knowing the truth. I, in this moment, I can know I'm lost. That's Dharma. I know I'm lost. Oh, so I do know Dharma. I can know how things are. And however you would take it, or my commitment, my intention to be with things the way they are, however you would organize that. And then likewise with the Sangha, there's, as I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed, my mind's restless, I'm sleepy, 
my back's hurting. There's somebody else in this room right now that's going through that too. Right now in this room, someone's having this experience. We're doing this together. It can make a difference. Or your commitment, because in you being part of Sangha, you are creating this link for the next generation, for the next person, for the person who's yet to discover the Dharma. By your being here, you're allowing all this to exist. So you may be sitting there going, well, I'm not getting anywhere at all. But as part of Sangha, you are creating this possibility for other people because there's a Sangha for them to come to. I was talking with uh, someone who's given their life over full time to just sitting. They've sold their home and uh, quit their job and everything. And uh, they were saying, you know, I may not ever achieve that much in the way of enlightenment, but I really believe that in my doing this, I am keeping the tradition alive for someone else, and maybe someone after me will achieve full enlightenment. Such a modest attitude, and so uh, uh, hopeful, and so interrelated. And therefore, that was a comfort for this person, because having done all of this, this person's having his bumps. You know, he's, he's having his hard time in, in, in uh, his, his practice like this, because now he has nothing but the Dharma. And wow, you know, to have given all of this up in this way. And yet when he had that realization, suddenly it wasn't such a heavy burden anymore, because it wasn't all about him. He had, he had moved to this larger context. That's what the Sangha can do for us in helping us. Likewise, as we've said already many times, being grounded in the body can really help in relation to uh, dealing with all of the hindrances and with all kinds of craving. To stay in the body, to stay someplace neutral in the body is very helpful. And feeling the grounded aspect, the ability to direct attention, to know that you can move your attention, that where it starts it, the, your attention starts getting collected around something when you start craving it and you get your attention gets fixated that you know that you know that you can place your attention elsewhere and no matter how many times it goes back to what you're craving you can move it one more time to affirm this for yourself is very empowering in practice likewise this uh, 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 concept of softening into an experience <laughs> So there you are, you're having a tough experience. And it's, you know, you're a little tight about it. You can soften into it. So take your left hand, put it out in front of you, palm up, and put your right hand uh, down on top of it. Now, if, it's, if you're being swept away, push your right palm into your left palm. Can you imagine how that would become suffering after an hour of sitting with this? Now, let that go for a moment. Now, just uh, keep the palms touching, but hover a little bit so that you're barely touching with the right palm on the left. So again, you know, that's a there's, a lot of, there's a lot of suffering in that because this holding gets to be really tense. Let that go. Now, just rest your palm. So already, it's more peaceful, right? Now just imagine that your right palm is spreading out and spreading all over down to the fingertips, down to the wrist of the left hand, that all that space in that palm is meeting all the space in the other palm. And it's just getting softer and softer. Notice the feeling quality of that and let it all go. You can soften into any moment when it's difficult. Sometimes you can soften a lot, sometimes not very much. Sometimes you won't remember. But when you do remember to have this relaxed attention that can soften into the experience, the resistance that, uh, that uh, Adrian was describing last night, that suffering is the amount of pain that is in a moment uh, with some sort of a multiple of the resistance, that resistance is overcome by the softening. Likewise, the metta that, that, I, uh, that we've done these two days and we'll do each day, the loving kindness in the face of the hindrances and face of craving, 
when there's nothing else to do the loving kindness or to do the compassion practice. Just uh, a poem for you around this. It's called uh, uh, Kindness, and I'm just going to read the first two lines. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. When you held in your hand what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. So in our hindrances arising in those times when we're caught in craving, they can be meaningless suffering or we can, through mindfulness, take the wisdom, oh, this is why I need loving kindness for myself, why I need compassion for me. This is why everyone else needs loving kindness and compassion. So when you feel the suffering and you, you treat the suffering as a source of wisdom, you understand where there's really no other alternative for the heart but the Brahma-viharas. I mean, it's really true. You just, uh, you look at all the alternatives often enough and you realize there's no other place for the heart to dwell. That's the only free place is this loving kindness, this compassion, this uh, sympathetic joy, this equanimity. So you learn that by dealing with the craving and in, in and uh, uh, cultivating the loving kindness and the compassion, you in turn are able to stay with what's difficult in a way that you gain more insight. And so it's a positive cycle rather than a cycle that's leading to suffering. It's a cycle that's leading from ignorance to wisdom, to freedom. One thing about the third insight of the second noble truth is knowing you know. Any time that you let loose of craving, it helps a lot for you to acknowledge to yourself, wow, I actually did let loose of that. Or here I am caught in this hindrance of, of, of wanting, and I'm not being reactive to the wanting. Wanting is just here in the background. I'm not doing anything about it. I'm not fixating on it. Wanting is present, but I'm not identifying with it. This acknowledging to yourself that this is true is in a way verifying for you your faith in your practice. It is uh, cognitively wise, the way we learn, it's a very positive thing to create this kind of acknowledgement. Also, when you have this moment of knowing, it's really true, I can let loose of, of clinging. There's a kind of spaciousness that comes, a sense of release. When in the movement practice, I was uh, referring to that moment of release in our efforting. And I was saying that's the one thing I want you to leave here with is this sense that you can have a release. When you let go of clinging, it feels like that. It feels like a release. And once you start knowing the feeling of release, then your nervous system intuitively starts knowing how to find it, whether it's coming from emotional things, from an outside environment, from your being conflicted in what you want. You learn to find a, 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 a spaciousness, a release, a, a feeling around that, so that even though it's still a difficult situation, you are not defined by that difficulty. Also, when you've had that moment of letting go, you can look back and there's a knowing the suffering. So there's a kind of clarity that comes from uh, the letting loose. And in that same way, there's a kind of confidence that gets built. So this knowing you know uh, becomes an important part of this. It's true that I get caught it's true that I can feel it, I can know the suffering of it, and I can abandon the very, uh, the very clinging. I really know that just as I am, I am capable of this. That's the moment of empowerment. In time, you find yourself in a radically new relationship with the hindrances of mind and with clinging. It is genuinely radical. 
You cannot believe me or anyone else. You have to go step at a time to find this for yourself. But I would think that just knowing that that's a possibility would serve as an inspiration and um, uh, a, a source of curiosity and motivation. So let's sit together for a moment. Letting loose of the words and paying attention to the felt sense in your heart, in your belly. Each of us find a new relationship with clinging. for your kind attention. It's time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.